Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 18. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about just some of the ways that generally you hear markets and more specifically, you know, risk in markets described, and then something called the efficient frontier and modern portfolio theory. Let's try and break those down. And are they past, a little bit passe, uh, especially the fact that they take into account so much historical uh, past returns then try and forecast those of the future in building portfolios? And really, then, what are some of the alternatives? So a couple things. When we look at, obviously, everyone wants the most amount of return with the least possible risk in a portfolio. And people also want to have a unicorn. I mean, there's some relationship between the amount of risk and the amount of return that you get. And one of the things that a lot of these investment formulas and ratios and different types of portfolio building try and do is come up with the most return with the, the least amount of risk. So first of all, when we say risk, a lot of times the way that you hear risk talked about is the risk of higher volatile or volatility returns or variance of returns. And what does that mean? Well, imagine if you were going to just measure an average of three days uh, temperature and then take the standard deviation. Okay. And one example, let's say you have a, a hundred degree day an 80 degree day and a 60 degree day. And I know it sounds like quite a quite a three days temperature variance. But if you look at that, you know, the first day is 100, the second day is 80, and the third day is 60. If you want to get a simple average, just a simple average of those three numbers, you add them all up, which is 240 divided by three, and the average is 80. And so we'd say the the mean or the average, the simple average is 80 degrees in that case. And then the standard deviation is basically the deviation from the mean. So if the average is 80 and you've got an average deviation of 20, 20 degrees there, your standard deviation is 20. And then we look at a second example. And so in the second example, you've got a 90-degree day, an 80-degree day, and a 70-degree day. Well, guess what? You add those all up, you get 240 divided by 3, it's still 80. So it's the same simple average of 80 degrees. But in this case, the standard deviation is lower, meaning the variance, the range is much lower. Uh, The standard deviation is half, it's only 10. And so in these two instances, we had the same simple average. And here I'm using temperature as a sort of a proxy to help explain this. You can imagine, though, a simple average of investment returns is simply, you know, let's say you take one year against the next, you take the first year, the second year, the third year, you add those up or sum them and then divide by three, and that tells you the average return. But clearly in this case, although the average in both of my sort of ridiculous examples is 80 degrees, the variance vis-a-vis the standard deviation is, and the first one is 20 and the second one is 10. And so if you thought about that as investing, you'd say, well, the return was the same or the average return was the same, but the variance was much greater in the first one. If I'm concerned about, or if I want to try and limit my volatility, get the most return with the least amount of volatility, I would choose the second example. Why? Because I had the same return, only 
I had much less or half as much standard deviation. So one of the ways that people continually measure risk is variance, and they use variance meaning the standard deviation of returns. And so the idea is if you have a stock and it returns something, let's say you've got a stock that returns on average 10% a year, and the standard deviation is 10, and then you have a second example, you know, that the simple average return is 10% again, but then the standard deviation is 30, you'd be like, wow, that that ride, that second example, the ride was much more bumpy, a lot more turbulence than that ride. I might enjoy the, the first one. Now, in these examples, I'm using the same simple average on returns, but returns aren't always lined up like that. And, and one of the ways that you do this, you kind of say, okay, well, let's say we had a portfolio that gave us an 8% return and had a 10% standard deviation versus a portfolio that gave us 11% return, so a higher return, but had a standard deviation of 20. Well, the better risk-adjusted return is probably that first one, even though the, the raw average, simple average return is lower the standard deviation is lower. And this is how most, uh, a lot of people in the industry and investors look at risk. It's a simple matter of looking at the standard deviation or the variance around a mean. And I hope I hope the, the simple you know weather example sort of helps you understand how those are created. So when we think about risk-adjusted returns or we think about you know just this idea of uh, efficient frontiers and modern portfolio theory and, and different things like that. Well, modern portfolio theory was created uh, many years ago. And essentially what it tries to do is it says, okay, how can you construct a portfolio using a lot of different asset classes or investments that's going to maximize returns for a specific risk? And so it's this idea of figuring out either an expected return or using historicals, uh, looking at things like variance, standard deviation, correlations, all these types of things. You know, the idea is to build a diverse portfolio that doesn't all act alike and isn't all correlated in the same way. Uh, later, I'll talk about why I think the alternative is a better one, which is just be along the market but be hedged. Because in the end, as we've seen, when markets sell off bad enough, especially in really stressful times, everything goes down. And uh, one of the things I pointed out in my book, Broken Pie Chart, that I wrote, which spent a lot of time saying, look, maybe the way we've been doing this isn't really the best way going forward. We took a look and we said, look, what's going, what happened in 2008? You know, all the country ETFs, all the sector ETFs, it all went down. And so in theory, this stuff is great until it doesn't work. But modern portfolio theory is just the idea that you want to have, um, you know, a, a portfolio that's non-correlated, that's diversified, and you're trying to figure out what's the highest return that you can get based upon a level of risk. And then kind of taking that further, uh, they create something called the efficient frontier. And of course, you're only listening to me. It's a podcast. But the efficient frontier is really what it does is it takes a look at a combination of assets and tries to do a couple things. One, it, it creates what's called a, a global minimum variance portfolio. Uh, that's a lot to say. It just means with a, let's say if you had two assets, what would be the, the best weighting? Uh, I shouldn't say the best weighting, but the weighting, you know, meaning X amount of, uh, of stock or 
asset A and X amount of stock B or asset B, what is the highest return with the least amount of volatility that you can get? Not necessarily the highest return, but it's including those two things. And basically what happens is when this is graphed, there's a point where it's the, the minimum variance portfolio, and then it sort of goes up and to the right. And depending upon the risk tolerance of uh, whoever it is you're designing this for, you can pick one of these portfolios and it's supposed to give you the most risk. And then if returns are below this efficient frontier line, they're considered non-optimal. So that's probably what uh, what I would normally go, you know, you could be in a classroom for a day or a week and uh, uh, kind of get exposure to this and go through this. But that's the the quick explanation of efficient frontier. And there's a couple things that, you know, are considered drawbacks on this. Number one is we're using past results. I mean, every prospectus, every investment people look at, it always has this disclaimer and it says past performance is no indication of future results. But yet what is, what do all those do when they're building portfolios? They're using past returns past returns to try and fill in an expected return going forward. And you're using many, many years. You know, if you're using 70 or 80 years worth of returns, it may not be indicative of the current environment or, or kind of moving forward in the next decade or so. And this is especially true with bonds. You see, the challenge with bonds when you're including many years of returns is you're including years where bond yields were much higher including in the late 70s and early 80s. You could have bought a 10-year treasury bond in 1981 for about you know, 15 and 15% and change. Uh, you'd probably take that every year. That's higher than the average annual, simple annual return from stocks or a compounded annual growth rate from stocks going back you know, to the 1920s. So you've got some of these years, and currently we know we have really low interest rates. Interest rates have started to rise as the Federal Reserve has started to rise uh, raise rates for the first time in, in a decade. But the risk when you've got such low yields uh, for bonds, unlike the last you know 37 years from 1981 to about you know, well, 2016, 2017, when you had this march lower from unbelievably high, record high interest rates, remember interest rates go down, bond prices go up, You've got this period now where you've got low rates and any sort of material, material rise in interest rates could put some stress on market values of, let's say, you know, if somebody owned a mutual fund with some longer duration bonds, you could see some stress in that portfolio if rates were to rise substantially. So that's one of the challenges with using some of these past returns, especially across different periods. The reality is that right now, we have very low real returns uh, in the fixed income space. And a real return, remember, is just you take the return, let's say, on a bond. Let's say a bond is you know 3% and inflation is 2%. We need to take the, the nominal return, which is the, you know, the simple interest rate, minus the inflation rate, and that's your real return. In that example, it'd only be 1%. And so when you account for inflation, bond yields right now are not really yielding that much above inflation, especially treasuries and, of course, you know, investment-grade corporates. High yield is, is yielding a little bit more. Uh, but that's, that's one of the challenges right now. So one of the things I did in just preparing for this episode 
is I went back and I just kind of took a look and said, you know, what if we went from 2008 to, I don't know, 2000, uh, you know, 18. And I think, I think I estimated some of the returns here. Uh, at the point I did this, the S and P was actually positive by, uh, 300 basis points. It was up 3%. It's down now, but just to give you an example, there's something called, you know, what you do is you you list out all the annual returns, and then you do what's called. Uh, so I did the SPY as a proxy for the S and P 500. I did the AGG, the U.S. Aggregate Bond Index total return, um, as a proxy for the bond market. And I said, what what was the uh, if we did a portfolio weight? Uh, of various weightings. And so you say, okay, you have 100% bonds, no stocks, 100% stocks, no bonds. Then you sort of break it down, you know, 1090, 2080, 5050, and so on and so forth. And then you try and figure out, you run what's called a correlation. You do a variance. You look at the means. You know, you're talking about an average. What's the variance? What's the standard deviation? What are the correlations of these two assets? And one of the things you do is you you plug in a risk-free rate. Currently, the risk-free rate is probably right around 2.5%. Risk-free rate is just if you wanted to buy you know, a three-month treasury or a one-year treasury, what would you get in return? And I asked, uh, I ran what's called a solver function in Excel. And basically, the, the minimum variance portfolio going back from 08 to 2018 through, I think, when the market was still up 3%, obviously, it closed down for the year. Uh, was about you know twenty percent stocks and eighty percent bonds, and the portfolio, the simple average would have been about four point eight one percent, and the standard deviation would have been you know three point eight one. So very low. Uh, compare that to to stocks. You know if you had stocks only, the standard deviation is more like you know seventeen eighteen percent. And so the. The point I'm making here, and by the way, that doesn't mean that's the optimal portfolio. That just means that's that's the most uh, gain based upon the minimum variance, the global minimum variance. And then you sort of look at the efficient frontier, and if somebody was more risk-taking uh, or prone to, to take risk, they would go up and, and do more stocks versus uh, versus bonds. And the other way that that traditionally people have looked at this, um, they've used something called a sharp ratio. And a sharp ratio, the higher the ratio or the the result, uh, the better. And so that's a way of looking at a risk-adjusted return. And so, for example, that portfolio, um, well, first of all, what, what is sharp? Sharp is you basically take uh, the return minus the standard deviation, and then you divide it, I'm sorry, the return minus the risk-free rate, so let's say if your return was 5% and the risk-free rate was, you know, 2.5%, well, you'd, the result would be 25 and then you divide that by the standard deviation. And so, for example, that portfolio uh, would have had, if that result, if you had that over the last year, the sharp ratio would have been about 0.60. And, you know, anything above around 1 or above 1 is considered uh, superior. So I bring this up because... This is something that's you know taught. It's something that has been expressed for many many years, and it's this idea of you know finding the the efficient frontier and this mix of stocks and bonds, and you know how does that look? I think there's a couple of challenges to this. And number one is 
variance or standard deviation can actually increase. Remember, people want low standard deviation. And the reason why it can increase is, let's say if you've got stocks that are averaging you know, 10% return over many years, and then you have the stock market go up 50 or 60% one year, uh, that would increase the standard deviation, even though the return was unbelievable. I don't know many investors who would say, hey, wait a second, uh, I only wanted 10% because I wanted the standard deviation to remain you know, low. You give me that 50% return and you're going to increase my standard deviation. In theory, it's possible for returns to have an outlier positive return and to actually have the sharp ratio go down because it's increasing the, the standard deviation. Now, later, they did something called a postmodern uh, portfolio theory uh, or efficient frontier. And in that version, what they did was instead of using more of a sharp based, they only looked at the downside deviation, meaning if, if you had outliers to the upside, those were fine. You didn't look at those. They used something uh, more like a Sortino ratio, uh, which only looks at the downside deviation or penalizes downside deviation on upside. So that that's one of the things I think is is a challenge with this. And with anything, you know, we're looking at many years of results and we're trying to, you know, build the the typical 60-40, 70-30, 50-50 portfolio. You're trying to look at results that may not be indicative of the future, especially with regards to bonds. You know, if you built a bond portfolio 50-50 and you did that in the late 70s, early 80s, you were getting substantially materially higher yields than you can right now. So I think the better way of going about this is rather than trying to come up with some sort of great mix of stocks and bonds, and by the way, we found that a lot of people need more yield, more return, um, even closer to retirement because they may need to increase their base of assets to be able to draw from especially given the fact, well, inflation's been low in the U.S. for many years, things like medical care and uh, college tuition and different things like that continue to rise. And so everyone's inflation isn't always the same. Uh, and by the way, the older people get, the more they tend to have to spend on medical. And so if, let's say things in the medical area, medical expenses, drug prices, all that stuff is going up greater than you know, your normal average inflation, uh, that also points to needing more more money in retirement. But the challenge is always, you know, obviously if you have 100% stocks very close to retirement, that's pretty risky. And it's risky for a number of reasons, um, but mainly that uh, somebody nearing retirement cannot take substantial material drawdowns like a 2008 type return. Uh, you know, enter a year and in 2008, the market at one point was down 50%, talking about the S&P. It later closed down 37 38%. Because there's simply no way to come back from that type of loss uh, because if somebody only has a, a few more years of working, uh, they can't make that up by stacking you know, their prime working years and salary years. So to me, I would rather uh, look at the buy and hedge retirement approach and something where you are long markets your long markets, but you do so with, in a hedge fashion. And, and doing so in a hedge fashion means uh, utilizing derivatives or options. Uh, and many people hear about options and they say, well, options are really risky and they would be right. 
but as uh, Zeka co-founder Jay Pestocelli always says, uh, most people speculate with options. So options used as a hedge can limit equity losses because while options can control uh, ownership in the overall market, uh, there's no necessarily ownership. It's an option to uh, not controlling shares. And so the downside is limited to whatever somebody spends on the initial investment. And the other side of the portfolio is using bonds, uh, not in the traditional way, but using them as a funding mechanism, meaning taking the interest or dividends and helping to pay for the, the long market exposure. And so rather than trying to do this, you know, perfect, efficient frontier, modern portfolio theory, uh, you know, asset allocation that's been around for a lot of years, I think moving forward, a more modern approach uh, is just to, to buy and to hedge and to have the opportunity to get the majority of the upside of the market, uh, but miss out on a material amount of the downside. And so if you're long and, and the markets go down substantially, uh, the equity side is controlled or minimized uh, as opposed to just having stocks and not having any protection on the downside. And by the way, uh, a couple episodes ago, and I'll link to that episode, I talked about uh, the idea of the target-dated funds. Target-dated funds are really just a way of, as somebody gets older, they're going to go more slanted towards fixed income or bonds than equities. But some of those target-dated funds in 2008 with a target retirement date of 2010, some of those had some very substantial losses. And so I think uh, many people were upset with those. And really, if they don't like that, what they're saying is maybe there's some question about traditional asset allocation. Uh, and so with that, I will wrap it up. I will, of course, link to the book. If you're interested in reading more about this, I went into detail in many chapters of the book and why I thought that traditional 60-40 portfolios are really not designed for the next decade or two and how I believe that hedging long side exposure while being hedged is a more optimal result. All right, folks, hope to be back next week, and we'll talk to you soon.